Good morning, good morning. Uh, as Jack said, my name's Nick. Um, I normally uh, go along to our evening meeting here in six, here in Sidcup, um, but it's amazing to come and be back with you. Uh, a lot of faces I recognise, a lot of dear friends, but also a whole bunch of people I don't know. So if I don't know you, I'd love to say hi at the end. We are going to be carrying on our series um, in Philippians, uh, which Paul writes for church um, in what's now Macedonia. Um, but before we kind of dig into it, um, I've got a question for you. Um, And that's this. What is the thing that you're proudest of in your life? What do you consider to be your greatest achievement? Um, it might be something to do with your career. You're, you're very proud of, um, of where you've got to in your career. It might be your house. You're particularly proud of kind of the way that your home's been formed. It might be kids, if you've got kids. Um, you might be particularly proud of them. Um, or it could just be something else, something uh, random even, like kind of the time when you were 12 and you got the award for Endeavour for the football team. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> but um, what is it? that you consider to be um, your greatest achievement? And what would it take for you to be prepared to give that up? To sacrifice it? To have an attitude towards it where you're like, you know what, actually I could throw it away right now. Hand in my resignation notice. Give her the keys to my house, the car, whatever it is. It would probably hurt a little bit to do that, wouldn't it? It would, it would cost you something. There'd be a sacrifice element to it. But there'd also be a, a, a level where, I don't know, but for me, certainly, I'd want to know that something better was around the corner, that there was something worthwhile in it. Um, because otherwise, you're like, why on earth would I do this? This is utterly pointless. Like, there is nothing which makes sense about me giving up that thing that I'm happy with. And in today's passage in uh, Philippians 3, we're basically going to be looking at, um, at this guy, Paul, and how he writes to the church there. And what he says is that knowing Jesus is of such greater worth, of such greater value, that in comparison to him, everything else that we would consider um, to be achievements, to be, to be good that we've done, just anything that we do is the equivalent of kind of lobbing it all together into a bin sack and throwing it straight into a skip that Jesus is that much better than it all. And I don't know what that kind of resonates within you. Like, it might be that in some ways you're like, that sounds ridiculous, Nick. What are you talking about? How? How is this possible? Or you might immediately know kind of what the passage that we're talking in, because it's quite a famous passage. So let's have a look and see why it is that Paul would say this. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 3. Um, if you don't have one, uh, don't worry about it. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord." 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Shall we pray as we start? Father, we, um, we thank you for the fact that you're involved in our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you've already been meeting with us, that you've already been sharing about how you love us, that you're for us, that you're with us. And I pray that as we, as we open up this passage together, that you would um, continue to work inside of us, that all of us would gain a new understanding of just how good you are, just how much you love us, and actually that in comparison to you, things pale into insignificance. Amen. Now, I wonder what it is that kind of sprung into your mind as we were reading through those, through those verses together. It, it might be um, that there is a part of you who are like, yep, know that, pretty famous, recognize that. It, like, in comparison to knowing Christ, count everything as lost. Yeah, we've heard this. So they're fairly famous verses. They come out quite a lot. Or if this is kind of one of your first times in church and you're kind of, you don't really know much about Jesus, you might be like, this sounds weird as anything. Towards like kind of a bit brainwashy or culty. Like in terms of we're saying that like, that we just don't care about anything or like I've got to become a monk all of a sudden, like grow my hair and have that ball patch thing and like give up everything. Like, what are you talking about? What is this, what is this guy called Paul saying? And wherever you are, you are so welcome here. You really are. Because, because what Paul's trying to unpack here is trying to say is actually that real freedom comes inside of Jesus. That actually this is a joyful thing. That there's something good in terms of trying to gain this attitude about what it really means to know Jesus as your personal Lord, as your personal Saviour. And so in order to try and understand this, we're just going to kind of walk through the verses as Paul helps us to. So he opens with that. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is really important for us to understand as we, as we kick off thinking about our lives full stop, but also this passage. The, that Paul opens with, finally, basically tells us, listen up right now. It's a, it's a complete break between what went before and what comes now. And so it's important that we listen to the next few words. Finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Now he means brothers and sisters, a bit like how kind of we used to use the word mankind to mean humanity in the time you'd use brothers to mean brothers and sisters. The masculine plural was just kind of the collective term. He means all of us rejoice in the Lord. Now, when we understand where Paul's coming from inside of this book and how he writes it, that's actually a bit of a like a, a mad thing to say in a lot of ways. Paul is in prison. He's facing like, the fact that he's probably going to die at some point, that he's not very popular, like he's changed up to another guard alongside, and he's saying rejoice in the Lord. Just think about that for a minute. Like, it's easy to be happy, it's easy to be joyful when things are going well for us, isn't it? When things are all like, happy and, and we can skip around on a field of daisies, like, it's easy to be happy, it's easy to have joy. It's a much different thing that, that, when, that when things are tough, when things, are going, things aren't going as well, for us to have this attitude of rejoicing about it. But Paul says, no, rejoice in the Lord. 
And it means that he's caught sight of something that says that, that this is more than just an emotion. This is more than just kind of like a sense of, I'm happy, things are going well. No, it's a deep state of being to have a joy that's rooted beyond your circumstances. To say that, you know what, whatever my lot, I can say that it is going to end well. That God is good. That he is for me, that he's with me in the midst of whatever faces. And so whatever's going on, I can find joy. Because for Paul, what ultimately has happened is that he's understood that inside of the gospel, there's always a reason to have a loose smile on your face. If Jesus is half as good as the claims go to be, if it's even remotely true of the fact that Jesus died, loved you enough to die on the cross to deal with all the things that bring you pain and shame inside your life, that he promises that he is for you, that he's with you, that God is making all things together for your good, that at the end of the story is that there will come a day when all things that are, that are problematic in this world will literally be picked up and thrown out, that there is reason to hope. There is reason to have joy. And so Paul is saying, finally, rejoice. Which means how we think about this, this idea of counting these as a loss, of, of having this attitude of maybe, just maybe, Jesus could be better, is Paul is framing it in the language of, you know what, this is something that's good for you. This is something that, you, that is positive. The second reason why I love it is because it's actually not the end of the letter. Like it's, when he says, finally, my brothers, if you look over the page, he does another finally. And so it's almost as if he just got a bit excited. Um, and he's like, oh, oh, actually, I've got another thing to say. I've got another thing to say. You see the mind of Paul. So if I go on a bit, I'm just embodying the spirit of Paul, not like anything else. So why would Paul say rejoice in the Lord? Well, he writes a warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Verse 2. What he's getting out there is he's filling us in a, bit, a little bit of context as to what's going on. You see, in the church in Philippi from this, what we can understand is that there are these people coming in um, who are telling that the Philippian Christians there have to become a certain way in order to be good, in order to be worthy of Jesus, in order to be worthy of their respect. And, and these people, these Jewish Christians, what they're going around saying is that, um, that, is that the Christians have to be circumcised. Um, circumcision being a ritual act where a, a man's foreskin is cut off as an act of belonging, as an act of belonging to the kind of the people of God. And what they're saying is that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, who's a man, admittedly, um, has to go through this ritual act in order to belong, in order to be good enough, in order to, to, to belong to the family. And if you know kind of a little bit about the rest of Paul's writings, this is like a red flag to a bull to him. Like in Galatians, he gets apocalyptically cross at this idea that you have to do something in order to be good enough to be part of the family of God. And so that's why he uses this language. He uses this language of dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. He's deliberately being like argumentative and, and kind of a little bit rude, basically, to say these people are idiots. They have completely misunderstood what's going on. Dogs, um, it's, it's a Jewish insult normally for Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews. So the Philippians themselves would be considered dogs by the Jews. And Paul's saying, no, 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 these Jews are really the dogs. He's saying he doesn't even use the language of circumcision for them. He says those who mutilate the flesh, cut it. He's saying what they're talking about is not even worth giving its proper name. It is, it is a complete abomination in light of what Jesus has done. And what he goes on to say is for we, verse 3, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. 
He's saying that actually because of faith in Jesus, because of what Jesus does, it's not about what you do. It's about who you are and what Jesus has already done. And so anyone who would try and say that you have to perform a certain way, that you have to achieve certain things, that you have to do certain things in order to be, in order to be enjoying all that God would have you to be part of the family is completely misleading you. And, and so if actually this is your first time, you're a hundredth time in church and you feel like you have to act or perform in a certain way to be a part of us, I'm really sorry that that's the attitude that you've kind of got the impression of because that is not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's saying that you are who God has made you to be. You are unique. You are made in the image of God and that he loves you on the basis of who you are, not the performance that you put up for us. Yes, we're all part of a journey where, where we are kind of being, we're being refined and changed to look more like Jesus. Yes, but actually it's not about us using the right words, about us using the right kind of actions or, or acting in a certain way. No, it is about you just saying, Jesus is my Lord and that's it. I put my faith in him and that's it. And this is such good news to our world because we live in a world that is obsessed by achievement, that is obsessed by doing. Think about it. When, um, if I was to come up to you and ask you, uh, what is it that you do? It's our standard way of like, introducing ourselves to each other, isn't it? What do you do for a living? And then we try and kind of loosely baffle around an idea that we're more impressive than we actually are most of the time. Like, um, or, or even if you say, you know what, tell me a bit about yourself. Nine days out of ten, you'll immediately start saying what you do not who you are. You'll be saying, oh, I work in this area, or I'm, I'm a, I'm a full-time mum, and so I do the X, Y, Z sort of thing, or, um, or I'm, I'm looking for jobs at the moment, or in between jobs, or, or you don't tell me anything about who you are, actually, what interests you, what you like, what's going on for you. Like, you, we immediately fall into this culture of doing even around here, like when you ask, oh, what, um, like, how are you sort of thing, nine out of ten, people's response is, I'm busy. I do lots of stuff that somehow it's impressive that our lives are so chaotic and so crazy and so full that, that actually we ought to be giving them respect. That if you say, you know what, actually, I'm quite free at the moment. You're almost like, what are you doing? Like, fill your life up. Are you crazy? And this works into, like, into the idea which you have behind celebrities, people who do stuff, who, who are impressive, who achieve things. So prime example this would be someone like Donald Trump. The fact that he ran an entire presidential campaign but on the basis of, look at me, how great am I? What have I done? Oh, we'll make America great again. We'll build a great big beautiful wall and we'll make America wonderful. We'll do a whole bunch of stuff and it will be amazing. We live in a world that is obsessed with achievements, that are obsessed with doing things. And the byproduct of it is, is that we are probably in an age where people are just, are just utterly crippled by, by fears of not, not succeeding where people don't know how to stop, to turn off, just to be. It's always about what's the next thing, what's the next thing, what's the next thing? Or how can I be better? How can I go to the next place, have the next thing that I want? Do, do, do. And so Paul's saying, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe it's not actually about what you do. Maybe there's something better on offer. So let's see what he says. 
We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, i.e. what we do. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. He's basically saying, you know what, if we're going to go into this list of like holy than thou's or like who's done more, like I'm going to get at the top here. Like, I am going to come out well here. And so he roots it in his own story. That's what the next few verses are talking about. He goes, you know what? Uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's talking about him being like, you know those guys who are saying that you have to be circumcised? Yeah, I did it properly. Like, he's harking back to um, bits in like Genesis 17 or Leviticus 12, where, where God instructs the Israelites that, that every, every boy is to be circumcised um, on on the eighth day of their life. And so he's going like, you know what? If we're doing it properly, I had it done properly. Um, it, then he goes on to, you know what? I'm of the people of Israel. I'm ethnically a Jew. I don't even have to try and become like one by being circumcised. I am of that people group. He then goes, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That's harking back to uh, the fact that Israel was split into these tribes. Um, Benjamin was the smallest of them, but it was also one of the most important because it had Jerusalem, the heavenly city included in it. And throughout the Old Testament, they remained faithful when other people didn't. So Paul's saying, you know what? If we're really talking about who's who in Judaism, like I'm up there. I'm kind of a big deal as it goes. That's what he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's like, I am very Jewish. I'm not a little bit Jewish, I am very Jewish. He's kind of almost like parodying it in some ways in terms of just trying to help the Philippians be like, oh, like, actually, if this was really about doing, Paul would be the guy who knew this sort of thing. It's a bit like kind of, you know, there's those, you kind of get those people sometimes where you kind of feel like, I know I'm a little bit religious, but they're very religious. They're very Christian. Like they say words like shoot and gosh all the time. Um, they they never swear. They never drink. Like they don't smoke. Like they seem to have kind of. They always seem to be singing around the house. Um, they wear checked shirts all the time. Um, they just seem to have a social life that revolves around Keish and Kaylee's. Um, like I somehow I don't. I doubt that they even know where babies come from. Like. He's kind of parodying it in the sense of being like, look, if we're talking about who's made the bar here in terms of being very holy, not that all those things mean that you're holy, by the way. Um, like, I am there. I'm at the top. And so he gives a few examples of, of what that outworked as. He's like, so you know what? My zeal, my fervor, my passion for my faith, my religion. You know what? I persecuted the church. Literally, Paul was the guy in Acts, in Acts 7 and 8 who is, who is standing alongside as the first Christian is martyred and he's happy with it. And it goes on to say that he ravages the church. He says that, you know what, in terms of understanding this all, I was a Pharisee. Pharisees were guys who knew the Bible so well that they built extra laws on top of the 618 inside of the Bible to be like, we are particularly holy right now. Like he, all of these things, he's banking up being like, look, if someone's made it, I have. I am really all the way up there. As to the law, blameless. He's saying, you know what, if I did anything wrong, I was going straight to the temple. We were getting a dove out. It was being sacrificed, and then I'm going through the whole purification process. He's like, I have made it here. If you could make it. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul's saying that there's an offer available to each and every one of us that is so much better 
So much more liberating, so much more freeing, so much giving you such a sense of hope and peace and joy. But in comparison to it, all the things that we would normally put stock in, all the things that we normally think give us worth and identity, pale into utter insignificance. The language he uses is literally that of, of destined for the scrap heap. What he's saying is that in comparison to Jesus, there's an offer available to all of us that is, that's a bit like kind of sitting down at the dinner table and you've got, two, you've got two meals in front of you. The first would be like a manky, like weak old, stone cold doner kebab, which has got like the hairs growing out of the questionable meat of the best of times with mushy salad um, and like just goodness knows what it's going to do to your insides. And basically you look at it, you're like, that's only deserves to be in the bin. Like, that is not going anywhere near me. And next to it is a freshly prepared, straight from the pan, prime, dry-aged, Aberdeen Angus steak with, like, triple-cut chips by the side, those delicious char-grilled lines, cooked by a Michelin-star chef, just sitting there waiting for you. I'm aware the analogy breaks down if you're vegetarian or vegan. Just fill it with a salad or something that works for you. Um... <laughs> But you get the point, hopefully. On the one hand, the thing that's destined for the bin. On the other hand, something that will just be enjoyable, will fill you up, will give you a sense of life and joy and just all good things. And Paul's saying, who in their sane mind would go for the one that's going to the bin? And that's the question for us. How do we know Jesus? How do we view him? How do we view what he's done for us in the sense of us kind of working out, is he worth this? Whether you're looking in for the first time, it's the investigation of if the claim is that Jesus is this good, that in comparison to him, everything else, you know what, I could be prepared to give it up. Then our invitation is, please, we'd love to talk more with you about what that could look like. But for those of us who do know him, the challenge is, do you have the same attitude? Are you prepared to give up things in your life that you would normally put stock by in order to actually say, you know what, following Jesus, knowing him, running after him is far more important than that. That's a heavy challenge. It is. There's a cost to it. But yet Paul's saying, you know what, it's worth it. It really, really, really is. As I was um, thinking about this, I was um, reminded of a, of a slightly older hymn from the 1920s, which, which has the refrain of, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And, and as I was kind of thinking about that, I read a little bit into the story behind it. And it was written by um, a woman called um, Lilius Trotter. Um, sorry, no, she, sorry, she'll come in a second. Helen, um, Helen Lemel, who wrote it. And she was inspired by, by Lilius Trotter, um, who was a very gifted painter. Um, like, um, she had a gift inside of her art that was, that was bringing her wealth, that was bringing her prestige socially, um, that was taking her places, so much so that the, the, the main crit art critic of the Victorian era turned around to her and said, you know what, if you devote yourself to this art, you will be the greatest living painter, and you will do things that will make you immortal. And Jesus spoke to her, 
and called her to go and be a missionary to Muslims in Algeria. And, and it took her two years to count the cost of that. But eventually she did. And for 38 years, she gave her life towards this, facing horrible persecution because she was a woman in that country, facing such difficulty. But she said this, Never has it been so easy to live in half a dozen harmless worlds at once. Art, music, social science, games, motoring, um, the following of some profession, and, and so on. And between them, we run the risk of drifting about, the good hiding the best. Turn your soul's vision to Jesus and look and look and look at him and a strange dimness will come over all that is apart from him. Lydia's Trotter, Helen, um, Lemuel, Paul, all of them grasp something of what it means to really hold Jesus as something special, to really know what he's all about. That, that it isn't about this kind of carefree abandon that kind of is, is saying, you know, I'm going to deny myself all these things. No, no, no. It's not saying that, but what it's saying that in light of him, all these things find their utter meaning, but also grow strangely dim in comparison. That I've gained something of such value, of such price, that that ultimately is the thing that I'm going to run after. And you see, inside of our world, so the way that we live our lives, we might not have those kind of, those literal dogs barking around us telling that we have to kind of perform in a certain way, but we do it to ourselves. We put pressure on ourselves, don't we, to, to, um, to kind of perform enough, to, to be enough, to have the next thing. And that enough might look like different things depending on where you're at. It might be that for some of us it's having enough to, to kind of be able to, to provide well for our families, to be able to kind of to, to be able to go on the holidays, to have the car, to, to get the bigger house, whatever it is. But we put that pressure on ourselves or we find our identity in terms of what we do in those areas. Or for those of us with, where kind of it, where having kind of enough can almost mean anything, looking for a job after so long of, of not having one of knowing where the next month's bill payments are going to come from. We all put such meaning inside of what we do and what we can bring to the table. Paul is saying to all of us, of course those things matter. They do. But knowing Jesus means that you already have a seat at the table. It's not about what you bring to it. It's about enjoying what he has already done for you. And that flips it entirely on its head to the world around us. It really does. Because it says so many things about kind of this culture of performance and just says, you know what, pressure's off. It doesn't matter if you mess it up occasionally. That's all right. You're human. You're not perfect. Join the club. Jesus has made you perfect because of his perfection. It says, um, and I really felt this to, to parents a little bit, actually, that, that the pressure's off in the sense of you raising your kids to be perfect or to have kind of a, a level of kind of like, like I know it from my work in terms of trying to be a social worker that one of the most crushing things can be where you feel like you're failing as a parent. The reality is you will in a lot of ways. Hopefully not so bad that life's 
I would say, need to be involved. But you will, in some way or the other, like, have moments where you lose your rag a bit, where you don't meet the bar all the time. That's okay. We're all works in progress. That's fine. For those of us who, who, are, um, who are really striving to... Um, Actually, I feel like there's something in, um, in, for people who, who kind of are either in between jobs or find it really difficult in their current job sort of thing as well, that, or just looking for anything in anyone. That our culture would say that you, ha- you have to get to the top there, that you have to bump up, we talk about career ladders, all this sorts of stuff. God say that to have a view where knowing Jesus is of better worth than that is to say, you know what, if the sum total of your life is just, you know what, just, I don't know, being on a checkout or stacking shelves sort of thing, Jesus would already say over you that, that well done, good and faithful servant. It's a status over you. That, that pressure is off in the sense of performing in that area. And so I think this is kind of where I'll slightly bring us into land. What is it actually that would mean that if, if it really is true that knowing Jesus is of greater value, of, of, of having him as first and foremost in our minds, of, of seeing him as better than all the things that would try and distract us inside this world, counting as loss other things like social status or the things that we do, what would it actually look like in our lives? Well, the first is this. Knowing Jesus gives you a true and unfailing relationship that will never change. We live um, in a culture, don't we, where relationships really matter. Whether you're single or married, or it, and we can put so much pressure on ourselves about kind of the friends that we have and how it is that we live our lives around them. Looking at other people and going, why am I not like them? What Jesus offers you, knowing Jesus, as Paul says, I counted it all as loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, is a personal relationship with a God up there who will never let you down, who will never leave you nor forsake you, who, who says over you, as Paul writes in Colossians 1.22, that he's already presented you as holy and blameless and beyond any form of attack, any form of criticism, any form of reproach before him, that nothing and no one, no scheme, no circumstance can ever pluck you from his hand and that he is always working things together for your good. That when God looks at you, he sees a beloved son or daughter and only with compassion, love, and mercy in his eyes and desiring that good would happen for you. That is what he offers to you. And he would say, keep that at the forefront of your mind. This isn't about us performing. It's already been given to you. Next would be that point about how actually I think it eases pressure, knowing that Jesus is of greater value than than the things of this world, of counting these as loss, of of just kind of paling into insignificance in comparison to him. It does just relieve pressure in terms of how we live our lives. That if we don't reach it, that's fine. That's all right. If we're not perfect, great. We can be honest about that. We can admit that we're sorry. We can say, you know what, I'm human. Forgive me, please. That when we do mess up, all we have to do is just come back before the cross and say, Jesus, thank you that you've already dealt with this. Help me to, help me to live more in light of that. 
eases pressure in terms of how we live our lives. Next would be that it gives us purpose. Look at how Paul ends, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What Paul's getting at there is that he's saying that, that, that life with Jesus gives you a real purpose because you know the Holy Spirit. That's the power of his resurrection. Is He's talking about the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. That's Romans. Like He's saying that inside of Jesus, knowing Jesus, holding him as worthy in your life, as valuable in your life, means that you have a purpose, which means that the ordinary becomes extraordinary which means that you can live your life and no matter the monotony of it, no matter whether you do the same thing day in, day out and you find it frustrating and difficult and dull, whether looking after the kids is difficult or whether just sitting at your desk is difficult or looking for jobs all the time is difficult, whatever it is, God wants to use you in that situation in ridiculous and powerful and amazing ways. That just casual bumping into people can have a meaning and a purpose far beyond just like kind of just chit-chat. I experienced this a few weeks back when I was up in London and a, and a and a homeless guy came up to came up to uh, came up to me and just kind of asked us for money. And so I gave him a little bit of money. Then just kind of chatting to him and just so oh so tell me a little bit about your story. Um, and you know sharing kind of the, the, where he'd come from, kind of a, a drug habit and a few things, and saying that he was looking for to get into a shelter um, to help with all of these things. And you're like oh that's like amazing. I'm, in some ways, I'm glad I could help out. But I just felt this nudge inside of me. Um, I don't know about you, but when I feel like the Holy Spirit's talking to me, I often kind of get a, like a, kind of almost like a gut nudge that I can't walk away from um, of just saying, offer to pray for the guy. And so I did and was like, oh, um, I'm a Christian, is there, and kind of believe in God, a God who loves you. Can I, like, can I pray for you? And, and he said, yeah, okay sort of thing and, and then I was kind of always felt like I was like okay well done next thing um he's like oh you know ask him whether he's got any aches or pains and he's and so I did and he was like yeah actually I've got a really um really dodgy foot um it causes me a heck of a lot of pain and so I said well would you mind if I prayed for that and and he allowed me to and so I prayed for him prayed for his foot um and he kind of just started walking off and so I was kind of like well it's always good to kind of check so I was like ah, oh, like how's the foot and he's like actually you know it feels pretty great right now like it's it's, it's Feels pretty good. And he came kind of back and was walking a little bit better and kind of said, you know what, it's really weird. Like, literally before I met you, like, this guy up the road kind of didn't give me any money but offered to pray for me, and I was just being a bit put put out, so I didn't pray for him. So I didn't let him pray for me. But then you, I come to you, and you basically do the same thing. And I say, yes, what's that about? I was like, well, maybe it's that Jesus is on your case. And so why don't you go and, you know, there's a church that's around the corner. Why don't you go and, like, meet them tomorrow and... Just chat to them about who this Jesus could be for you. And it's complete freak random circumstance. I didn't go out of my way looking for it. I didn't kind of particularly have an attitude, you know what, I'm gonna, today I'm going to be looking for that opportunity sort of thing. It was just the moment of just being present in the moment and knowing that God wants to involve himself in your life and that he gives you power to do that, that made me just be like, you know what, what's the worst that could happen? Pressure's off. I don't have to do it, but I get the fun of doing it. And so that's what it does. Knowing Jesus gives you such a purpose in your life that means just ordinary random moments can actually just be a whole lot more fun. That definitely changed my night a little bit and was such a privilege. And it's the same. God wants to use you, whatever it is you do, to bring his kingdom into the world around you, to speak life and hope into people around you, to, to, to bring good news to the poor and bind up the broken heart and to bring healing to those who are hurting. We're called to join into a story that is exciting. And Paul says, live for it. Know it. 
Next, um, knowing Jesus in this way, as Paul would say, counting things as loss, I think changes the way that we think about suffering as well. Look at how Paul um, kind of ends. Um, So know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul has this view that, that suffering does happen. Like, Sometimes we give off the kind of the image that like being a Christian means that everything like is really easy and really great. That's really not what kind of the Bible teaches. But what it does say is that God is with you in the midst of that. And that he uses suffering and difficulty to change you and, and work inside of you. That out of it, as Peter writes, that there's a testedness, there's a genuineness, there's a, there's a, a refining that can happen through difficulty that comes our way in terms of how we respond to it. And Paul says that if we truly think of Jesus as a better value, then you know what, bad, things come our way, we can say, you know what, I know what the end of the road is. I know that Jesus is with me here. I know that he is for me. I know that one day things will change. And so I can get through this. Or actually it's that we're prepared to sacrifice as well. We view, we view kind of sacrifice for the sake of him as good suffering. That we're prepared to say, you know what, this thing is great in my life. But I'm prepared to give it down, lay it down in order to go and follow what he would have for me. A prime example of that, even in this church, would be um, people like um, Derek and Jenny Gibbs, where Derek is, uh, Derek is one of the elders here. Um, he and his wife Jenny have lived in the area, been part of the church for like 30-odd years, a family here, like all sorts of like, really amazing good things going on for them here. And they've been, they're prepared to just go and move over to the hay just to be part of, kind of the church there because they're like, you know what, why not? Jesus is up for an adventure, so let's follow along. Because they get that following Jesus is of greater value than all the other things. That's not to say they think that their family doesn't matter or their life here doesn't matter. No, they fully believe that. But it means that they're prepared to say, you know what, actually following after Jesus is of such greater worth that, you know what, let's just have some fun. Just go along for the ride and see what the adventure takes us. That sacrifice can actually be a good thing. Whatever your circumstance Saying no to something can actually be a good thing because it can work in you. Single people, this can particularly apply. That in some ways, kind of there can be that, that sacrifice of, you know, right now I'm not in that relationship or I'm not in the marriage that maybe I'd like to be. But you know what? Jesus would say that he is enough for me in this so I can learn through the midst of this to, to be more and more like him. Just the same as in, in relationships, you do have to sacrifice to the other person. That's a good thing. And so your attitude can change towards suffering. And then finally, um, I think knowing Jesus in this way of counting things as loss in comparison to him means that there's hope, that there's always, always hope. Paul ends, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul says there is that he knows the end of the story. He knows that in having a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus, that he is destined for eternity with him. That he's destined for a heavenly city, Revelation 20, 21, where where God is with his people, where God says, I will wipe away every tear that plights the human existence. He literally will bundle up all the the schemes of Satan, all all death, everything that is wrong and evil and twisted in this world that would hold us back and throw it out never to plight the human existence again. That every ounce of disability, every ounce of racism, every ounce of of social degradation will equally be cast away never to blight us again Paul knows that the end of the story is for his good he knows that that is guaranteed because Jesus has already risen from the grave and so he can see that there is hope in every circumstance that is going on wow
Let's go back to the start. What is it that you kind of find meaning in in a lot of ways? What is it that you, you view as valuable in your life? That's not to say that those are bad things at all. But there's an offer available for all of us of something that is of such greater value, such greater worth, that we can step into that story as well. In many ways, the the dinner table has been laid in front of us. And the invitation from Paul, the invitation from God would be, what is it that you're going to choose? How are you going to live your life? Will you choose to put Jesus at the front as of the greatest value? Or will you put something else? And for those of us who who maybe don't know Jesus as our personal uh, Lord and friend yet, there's an invitation for you to start to get to know this as well. Start to, to investigate whether he really could be, or say, you know what, this sounds kind of this sounds like something I want to maybe get involved with. And we would love to chat with you, we would love to, to pray with you, even that you would start your relationship with him. But the offer stands. What are you going to take? Jesus or something that ultimately just isn't that great? Shall we pray? Jesus, I thank you uh, for what Paul helps us see in this passage. Thank you that um, we get to understand the truth of the gospel that says that, that, that you are good. Thank you that uh, we, we get to see that you love us, that you're for us, that you're with us in whatever situation we're facing. And I pray that you would help us as a people to, to get hold of this concept that, that in comparison to you, other things just don't matter in the same way. That performance doesn't matter. Doing certain things doesn't matter. We have already gained the greatest treasure that we ever could. And that's relationship with you. Help us, help us. Um, whether it's the first time we're praying this or it's, it's, uh, we've done it many times before. To, to really fix you in the front of our minds again. To, to look at you and see how things this world do grow strangely dim in comparison to you. Thank you that you are always about working things together for our good. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're with us. Amen.